This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, reported cases of COVID in New Orleans schools have exploded in the last week with the rise of the Omicron variant. We'll take a look at how schools are handling it. And the civil rights trial against David Wade Correctional Center began this week as prisoners who were kept in solitary confinement for extended periods of time took the stand. And longtime prisoner at Angola State Prison Bobby Sneed was released from that facility after a months-long court battle. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kayla. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, it's it's hard to not use uh, hyperbolic expressions when we talk about the number of COVID cases in schools. They went up dramatically. What's the latest COVID data? Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you there. I think, you know, we knew these numbers were going to go up, but I don't know if I expected them to go up so much. We were reporting 130 cases last time we talked, and what came out this week was uh, 2,233 cases. So you know, absolutely Omicron variant, um, a staggering number of cases and nearly uh, 2,200 people in quarantine as well. How does that fit in with uh, broader citywide data? I think it's pretty much, you know, should have been what we expected. Um, The district did uh, test over 18,000 students and staff over the course of last week, and they came back with a 13% positivity rate. Uh, Meanwhile, the city had about a 20% positivity rate. So it seems like students and staff or, you know, people who opted into this test were perhaps um, a little bit less likely to be testing positive. But um, nevertheless, it seems pretty much in line. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, you suspect that, you know, right before the holidays, um, there was less testing going on in mid to, to late December than there than there was right after the holidays ended, where the school district was doing surveillance testing, you know, these sort of mass testing events. And a lot of people, you know, everyone here has experienced the difficulty in getting a testing appointment or getting a test. So there was just a ton of testing going on when people were coming back to work and back to school from the holidays. So it seems natural that that we're getting a a big uptick like this, but, but it's still pretty staggering to see. One additional thing we do know after we reported on those numbers on Monday was that that 2,200 number of people in quarantine was likely significantly lower than the people who are actually in quarantine because many of the large charter networks had, you know, test numbers or positive cases rolling in in the later parts of the week and they weren't able to complete contact tracing. And your story sort of delineates how the the numbers aren't spread kind of evenly across the schools. There's some hills and valleys there. Will you explain that? Yeah, it seems like we saw um, some really high counts in elementary schools, um, which is, you know, students there are less likely to be vaccinated just because they weren't allowed to be vaccinated until more recently than older students. Um, We also saw the place where we saw the most number of cases was at Ben Franklin High School. They had, I believe, 122 positive cases out of a um, 1,000 person student body plus staff. And but they only reported three quarantines. Um, so that was surprising to me. So I went back and talked to their spokeswoman and, you know, she said that they delayed the start of school. They tested students. So they um, avoided some of those contacts that would have happened. Um, but also 85% of their students and staff are vaccinated um, or sorry, 85% of their students are vaccinated, which means they don't have to complete those quarantines if they remain asymptomatic. So when we add just the the additional quarantines that we know about, I mean, it's what several hundred more. So we're approaching like 
3,000 probably, just what we know. Right, and that's only, you know, a, a portion of the schools. I just didn't talk to all of them. Right, right. So plus 20, about 2,200 cases. So that's, you know, more than 5,000 is teachers and students who are out, which, um, you know, just some back of the envelope here, that's almost, that's like 8% of the total population. It's massive. How do they determine who has to quarantine? I mean, who, what's, the, what's their um, uh, guidelines? If you are a close contact, um, you are supposed to quarantine unless you are vaccinated and are asymptomatic. So vaccinated people don't have to, if you're not feeling symptomatic and you're vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine at all. Correct. Yep. But so that's, and that's where you can see those higher numbers in elementary grades because yeah. less people are likely to be vaccinated. Yeah. I have two more questions about the numbers. First, I think I know the answer, but they don't differentiate between faculty, staff, and student population with these numbers, do they? They don't at the individual school level. They do um, on the Overall. larger count. So about 1,600 students are positive and uh, nearly 600 staff. Okay, so it's larger numbers in the kids. Right, and they used to differentiate on the school level and they stopped doing that. So curious why they did that. Hmm. Okay, and then secondly, do they? is there any data released on whether any of these folks are hospitalized? We, we don't know that. Okay. All right, so what are schools doing? Are they closing? So some schools have switched to remote learning. I know of at least 12 that have done that. Um, and they cite a variety of reasons from case counts to you know critical staffing shortages, um, whether that be across the building or whether that be you know just certain grade levels. Um, and those 12 schools, those are schools that are fully remote. There are several other schools that have you know certain, you know the middle school or fourth grade or kindergarten that are remote just based on staffing, um, inability to staff those grades. Okay. And what's the testing situation like at schools right now? A lot of schools are still doing a weekly surveillance testing that's made available through the Louisiana Department of Health. Um, not necessarily all of them, but um, the district is trying to ramp up its testing um, from what I understand. And what sort of mitigation measures are they taking to prevent further spread? So the district still requires um, masks in schools um, for students and staff. Uh, they have other They've re released other guidelines recently, no unessential visitors. They want people to re uh, reduce extracurricular activities and or only allow you know, vaccinated family members to come watch sporting events and things like that. Worth, worth noting as well, and this is you know, this not uh, relevant to the, to the public school district, but uh, the, the mayor has, as of this week, reinstated uh, a citywide mask mandate back in what was it October when when they first took the, the citywide mask mandate away they kept it active for schools now NOLA public schools was keeping it whether you know whether or not the city was keeping it but when they last week uh, sort of mysteriously and without any announcement the city decided to remove the school mask mandate which gave the archdiocese the freedom to uh, to make masking optional at Catholic schools which is you know, essentially the second biggest school district in the city of New Orleans. Um, and uh, uh, so, but as of this week, uh, that's been reinstated in the city. So Catholic schools also have to go back to masking. Can you go into a little more detail about how that happened? Well, so we don't really know a lot. Um, you know, there's been some reporting on it from, from NOLA.com. It really didn't get into the issue of why the city decided to do this last week. Um, this move that would only affect private schools. Um, 
and, and, uh, and then come out in a press conference and say that school that no one should drop their mask mandate. It was very convenient. Yeah, it was it was it was ridiculous. I mean, this, the the city knew that the archdiocese had already dropped masking its own masking mandate in other parishes. You know, the archdiocese covers the you know the entire all of southeastern Louisiana, and most other parishes other than Orleans didn't have any kind of mask mandate. So the city clearly should have known what the archdiocese was going to do when the city took away this 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 uh, this mass mandate for schools, um, and so the city did that. The archdiocese did what was entirely predictable, and then the city criticized them for it. It was you know the city had the power to to stop that, and it it could have just not changed anything. But so we don't know. Um, I believe I believe Marta's doing a little bit of reporting on what happened there, um, so we may find find out more in the next couple of weeks, but I'm not sure. When the city made that change last week, it's because they they dropped you know a little bit of language off the section on schools, which said that schools had to follow um, citywide masking policies. Yeah. And the guidance the city released this week, they did not add that language back in. Mm. Uh, how are parents and teachers and how's everyone responding? Uh, it's hard to broadly. Which, which part? <laughs> well, right. Um, I guess the, the non-closures when that's applicable and or closures, you know, I mean, I guess just uh, what's the temperature like out there? I mean, I think there's a lot of people on both sides. You know, people want students in school because they that's a better learning experience and good for social emotional learning and stuff. And then on the flip side, there people are concerned about safety. Um, there was one teacher this week who who spoke about um, you know what it was like for she's in person. She has kids in her class, and at the end of every day, like the students would watch you know another student have to be sent home with their laptop because they're going you know to virtual learning because they were exposed and. You know, she was saying, you know, that's almost just as traumatic for these young kids to have to like watch. Oh, oh, who's next? Am I next? Who's next? Am I going to be next? So, well, it was a really grim picture. Right. <laughs> but we do have a few schools that have gone remote, you know, for a week or two weeks. And I think they're trying to just see if we're going to get over the surge in the next couple of weeks. Um, numbers are trending down a little bit, but I talked to epidemiologist Susan Hassig with Tulane earlier this week, and she said she wouldn't feel comfortable predicting a downward trend until we saw a significant decrease over several days. Right. One other thing I want to note is that, you know, the district early on in the pandemic, we're talking summer 2020, fall 2020, they had set metrics of when they would switch to virtual case counts and things like that. Obviously that was before the vaccine. Um, they don't have any set metrics right now. And part of that I think is because they, you know, they say this is a fluid situation. They'll, you know, continually evaluate and schools have the ability to switch to virtual if they want to. Um, but the United Teachers of New Orleans, the teachers union here, recently came out and requested that the district set a standard of if 15% of students or 15% of students and staff are going to be absent from a building, that they want that school to go virtual. The district hasn't responded to that formally, and I, uh, to be honest, have not asked them yet, but um, that is circulating out there as potentially a trigger. And by that metric, we are there in some schools. Oh, I'm sure we are. I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I'm confident we're close to it, if not for quarantines, for people, um, you know, just worrying and, and keeping their kids home. When um, the union makes a, a request like that, how, off, 
how long does it typically take the district to respond? Well, I probably have to ask them first, so that's on me. But, um, the, you know, the union has limited power in the city because they only have collective bargaining contracts at a handful of schools. So it's certainly not uh, like Chicago or anything like that. All right, Marta. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Nick, in criminal justice, we talked about David Wade Correctional Center last week, and we knew the trial was going to begin this week. But for anyone who, who was not listening to last week's podcast, Will you give us a background on the civil suit that was brought against this institution? Yeah, so the lawsuit is a, is a class action suit um, on behalf of all the prisoners who have been held in, in extended lockdown at David Wade or, or solitary confinement. And it alleges that one, the conditions of solitary confinement at the prison are unconstitutional and inhumane. Um, and then it also alleges that, that prisoners aren't given sufficient mental health care, that prisoners with mental illness are not treated. Um, and this leads to a cycle in which, you know, being put in these conditions exacerbates mental illness or, you know, can cause it itself. And then these prisoners aren't, aren't given treatment, they deteriorate, and the prison responds, you know, in, in sort of even more punitive um, and, you know, in some cases abusive ways. So that's sort of the, the uh, main argument in, that, that the lawsuit is making. Um, and you know, it was brought several years ago and, and the trial just started this week. Okay. And it's scheduled. You told us last week that it's scheduled for four weeks. It started on Monday. What's happened so far? So Monday they called several prisoners, uh, a number of whom are, are still being held at, at different prisons, not at David Wade, but who had spent uh, extended periods of time in solitary confinement at David Wade um, in previous years. So you know, it was really the first day of trial was 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 their testimony um, about their experiences in solitary confinement at the prison. Can you go into some detail on it? Yeah. So the lawyers for for you know who are suing the prison sort of wanted to lay a foundation both in terms of what the conditions are like and then the the mental health care that that these prisoners received or didn't receive. So in terms of conditions, you know, these men were being held sometimes for years at a time um, in their cell for, for over 23 hours a day with, I think they're given or allowed three books um, and really little else. Um, so very little social interaction. Some of them reported being let outside sometimes for a few minutes, depending on staffing levels. Some reported just being given you know a 15 minute shower every day. You know, these men really kind of describe what that sort of isolation and what those conditions do and the feeling of, of kind of despair and hopelessness that 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 comes from that, um, you know, in addition to not really having any interaction with with other prisoners, they're they're only given one 10 minute phone call every month. So, 
and you know these phone calls i think you, you i don't think you you don't have much control over when you're able to call someone so that that sort of compounds this like i say feeling of isolation and, and despair that that many of them described as we know and as you've written about before nick uh you know solitary confinement um after just a a few days you know or like two weeks or something like that can have profound adverse psychological impacts on, on people um and you know let alone months or years as we've seen in a, a lot of these cases um and uh you know that uh, part of the argument is that that is in you know those those sorts of problems are causing to are, are you know maybe contributing to some of these inmates appearing to act out and only extending their their time in solitary as a result and and then on top of that not getting proper full treatment so it's you know it's kind of it's what they're alleging is that the, the prison system is kind of creating a vicious cycle for these prisoners yeah Were, did they cross-examine the um witnesses the prisoners yeah they did so the attorneys for the Department of Corrections, um, you know, they really, they really tried to focus on, on the individual prisoners disciplinary records. Um, so they were questioned a lot on, on why they had been put, you know, in solitary confinement in the first place. Um, and, you know, they're, they, in their opening statement, they basically made the case that, you know, these are violent men. Um, this is a necessary tool that we need to, to keep the prison safe. And that, they're manipulative that they're going to try and tell you that things are worse than they are. And they're just trying to get back, you know, they're just trying to, to cause more trouble for, for the prison. In addition to being held in solitary confinement and Charles just, just sort of outlined the mental impacts, the mental health impacts on just being held in solitary confinement altogether. But what are they alleging about uh, the lack of mental health treatment? So one of the things that, that, that the prisoner said is that, you know, they can put out a request for for mental health care and that when someone comes by which they say happens you know relatively relatively infrequently um one of the mental health staff they will talk to them at the bars of their cell but that is in front of other prisoners it's in front of other prison guards who they may have have issues with and who may be contributing contributing to some some of their um you know mental health issues and you know, they basically said, a number of them said, it's not worth it. It's not worth to talk, talking to someone when this could create, you know, it could give other prisoners a reason to uh, have something to hold over me or to, to you know, make fun of me. Um, it's not worth it if a guard is hearing me complain about, you know, the treatment that I've been receiving, they could retaliate against me. Um, so that was a, a common issue. And they, you know, many of them said that they, they requested confidential settings and, and never got them. So that was one issue. And then, you know, there's one licensed psychiatrist who, who treats the, the whole population on extended lockdown at David Wade. And he sees prisoners, he has to see everyone at least once every 90 days. And that kind of seems to be about when people are able to see him. But prisoners basically said when they saw him, the only thing he was able to offer was, was uh, prescriptions. So, you know, a number of them said, I was having, I was feeling depressed. I was having trouble sleeping, and I just wanted to to you know find out what was going on and, and and discuss this with someone. You know, when I when I saw the psychiatrist, he basically said, "Do you want some pills?" And so that that I think was another frequent complaint that there's no form of you know individual or group counseling. Um, really, the only option is is 
prescriptions. Um, and, and, you know, if those don't work, then you're, then you're sort of out of luck. Right. Or if you don't want to take medication. I think we talked about this last week, but I really I want to emphasize it or, or reiterate that that the prisoners are not asking for any monetary compensation here. They, yeah, that's, what are they that's, asking for? Well, they're asking for the, the prison to, to provide sufficient you know mental health care and to improve the conditions at in the solitary confinement um, uh, unit. So, like, yeah, as, as we sort of talked about, it's it's unclear what that will exactly look like ultimately. Um, but you imagine it would be some sort of changes in policies and procedures and then an enforcement mechanism, maybe some sort of oversight. You know, the, one interesting thing is, is one of the arguments that the prison is making is that they don't actually hold prisoners with serious mental illness uh, who are, you know, experiencing experiencing symptoms of that illness at David Wade. They have a certain level of care. They assign, assign prisoners a certain level of care and and certain levels. Um, people with the people with the most acute and most serious mental health needs aren't held at David Wade. Um, but a number of prisoners testified that, you know, they saw people who were talking to themselves, who clearly had no, you know, grasp of reality, who were were playing with their own feces in, in some instances. So in those those cases, it really, you know, it's hard to to imagine a scenario in which that would wouldn't be considered, you know, exhibiting a serious mental illness. Um, and that kind of gets at what these civil rights attorneys are alleging, which is that they aren't properly, you know, diagnosing or screening these people either. So um, so not only are they are they not treating them, but they're sort of denying that that they're the problem even, you know. Nick, can I ask you something? So putting the issue of, of uh, mental illness among these prisoners aside, just at a very basic level, um, doesn't solitary confinement for this length of time, and we're talking months and years here, appear, at least on its face, to, to, to violate policies that the, that the prison system has adopted over the last couple of years? And if so, again, putting aside the issue of mental health, just, just solitary confinement itself, how, how, how does the prison system address that? Well, the, the prisoners who testified today, and this, um, the, the testimony in the lawsuit right now only goes up to a certain point, um, and I can't remember the exact date, but basically there's a discovery cutoff period that is before it's not up to present day. So these men were, were being held. I think the, the last person left David Wade in, in 2020. And at that point, they didn't have this new policy that, that is now in place that is supposed to prevent people from being held uh, in extended lockdown for that period of time. So, so for these men, they would get a disciplinary write-up. They'd be sent to, to solitary confinement. And then they were supposed to go up before a 90-day review board. So every 90 days, they were supposed to be reviewed, and and it was supposed to be determined whether or not they could be held back in general population. In some instances, what would happen is they would get another write-up, which would preclude them from going up before the board, and they would, you know, remain there sort of indefinitely. And sometimes these write-ups were for things like not having their jumpsuit all the way up, uh, you know, in the summertime when it, when it was very hot. 
the prison would argue that they're trying to change those policies um, so that that's not happening as often. Um, this this new disciplinary matrix that we've talked about uh, is supposed to to delineate sort of very specific a uh, specific amount of time that that people can be held in, in solitary. There are ways around that, as we've talked about. Um, they can determine that that a prisoner is is just a threat to the institution and keep them there, um, unrelated to any specific disciplinary charge. Some people are are just held there because uh, the prison claims there's no no room um, in other parts of the prison. So you know it it is still happening. Um, but like I say, I think the the prison would argue that they, that that they're attempting to change their policies to to reduce the the frequency of people being held in extended period for extended periods of time. Hmm. I see. Okay. Another story this week, Bobby Sneed, the Angola prisoner who was paroled last year, then had his parole stripped over a drug charge, seems to have prevailed in a lawsuit against the state parole board and he was released. What happened? Yeah. So Bobby Sneed reached a, a settlement with the state parole board. Um, it was filed this week. I think they came to the agreement last week um, and he was released last Friday the the settlement is you know remarkably similar to what what Mr. Sneed was asking for several months ago, sort of before this whole thing even even started, um, and that is that he is given parole. He has to complete a twenty eight day substance abuse treatment program in Baton Rouge, um, and then he'll be he'll be on parole. So it was it was a bit of a surprising outcome because. You know the parole board has been fighting to keep him in in prison for for several months and has kind of pulled out every every stop to to do that. Um, so so yeah, it was it was a bit of a, a surprising turn. Why do you think the change of heart? Well, the settlement negotiations are confidential and they they happen. You know there there are a number of status conferences with the judge that weren't weren't public, so it's hard to know exactly. But one would imagine that they they had gotten. The impression from this federal judge that that something like this was going to be inevitable and that they were going to to need to release him eventually. When they reached the settlement, Bobby was being held in, in jail because he had been ordered released from prison. Um, but the parole board immediately issued a warrant for his arrest based on an alleged parole infraction that had occurred at Angola. Um, so he was being held in this jail. And they were sort of moving forward with revocation proceedings, parole revocation proceedings against him, which would have then sent him, you know, he, he, he would have been moved back to Angola. So, you know, that, that was the kind of way things were moving. I'm not exactly sure what occurred uh, during these discussions with, with the judge, but clearly they must have felt that, that if they were going to go ahead and revoke his parole, that, that there was going to be some sort of intervention. Yeah, and I would just say, I mean, like, we, you know, reading the various opinions that have come out from judges in, the, in this, these two cases, actually, one state and one federal, um, with the possible exception of the uh, First Circuit Court of Appeal, I don't think they've, it seems like, to me at least, that they, they have not gone in front of a single judge who felt that, that the parole board was being reasonable and continuing to pursue this case against Bobby Sneed. Yeah, that's accurate. Um, and you know, they had, you know, several judges had, the Louisiana Supreme Court had ruled that, that the way in which they stripped Bobby Sneed's parole violated his due process rights, that, you know, this was basically an illegal procedure 
And what the Louisiana Supreme Court said was basically you need to go back and have a full revocation proceeding, which was what was what was sort of moving forward. But Bobby Smith's lawyer alleged that this revocation proceeding actually was illegal as well because they he hadn't even been on parole yet when they were alleging he, this this infraction occurred. So I think that you know the possibility that they would be you know that their that the procedure would be found unconstitutional you know by the supreme court and then they try and do it again and this one is also you know illegal i think i think that they probably were at least conscious of the fact that 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 maybe would not make them look so good right so he's free yeah he is free as far as i i know he is in a the, an outpatient um drug treatment program his his lawyer picked him up from my uh from west feliciana jail on friday and and brought him to Baton Rouge, so he is free. Okay. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you. All right, everyone, stay safe out there. It's a crazy time. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for your work this week. Thanks, thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.